Do you think I'm gonna lose this fight? No. Good. Me neither. Hello humans, welcome to the M-Word, the Manx Sports Podcast brought to you by Martin, that's me, and Matt, that's him. Welcome back people, I hope you're all well. Uh, just to kick off, first of all, we'd just like to thank our show sponsor, Billboards.im. As I said previously, it does exactly what it says on the tin, which is billboard advertising, but does it digitally. Uh, and you'll have seen them down the sea terminal and up, out through town, so if you want to get your brand out there, get your message out to the, to the public... They're, they're the guys to go and see so go and visit billboards.im today and we'd obviously just like to thank them for their help with us they're the future of advertising on the RMAT. Uh, so Matthew in our introduction there we had a uh, some audio does the uh, voice it's a clip from a movie does it ring any bells with you no unfortunately no. I'm going to have to go three for three on um, the uh, intros okay so <laughs> so it's from a actually from a boxing movie called uh, bleed of this right. heard of that no, no? okay it, it's about an American boxer who uh, was at the top of his game, moving up through the ranks, and had a, a bad car accident. Ended up with a halo, helping support his neck, etc. Oh, okay. uh, had to re- obviously go through a lot of rehab to get back into the ring. And uh, Vi- uh, Vinny Paz was the name of the boxer, so feel free to look him up. He t- and obviously he dealt with a lot of adversity in his life, uh, getting through that that injury ultimately, which ties in nicely to our guest today, who's joined us in the studio to really chat about his career up to this point, how how he how he worked through through the cycling ranks on the island and then internationally. So welcome, Johnny Bellis. Thanks for your time, Thank for you. coming in. Thanks for having me. No, pleasure, absolute pleasure. So the first question we ask all, all guests, Johnny, is are you uh, come over at Manx, Manx Manx, or Manx is the Hills? Definitely Manx is the Hills. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Family, whole, whole family yeah. from the Isle of Man. Somebody said to me the other day, they said, oh, you're the Manxest person I've ever met. Oh, right, and okay. I was like to myself, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot more Manx people out there than me. <laughs> the Manx farmer, and you. I think yeah. about now it is quite. Yeah, I've got quite a strong, quite strong. Coming from me, I appreciate that's quite ironic, but quite a Manx accent. Yeah, that's not a bad thing. No, no, saying. absolutely proud. Should be proud of it. Yeah. Proud of it. No, I am. Yeah. Okay. So, known for cycling, early days. What got you into the sport? What attracted you to start riding a bike? Um, I was basically one of those kids. When I was growing up, I just wanted to do all kinds of sports. So I was doing rugby, football, cricket, um, swimming, running as well. And um, so literally every day of the week, I'd be absolutely knackered. I'd wake up at school the next day, and I'd just be like, oh, I'm so tired. I just want to lie in bed longer because I'd be doing an activity after school every night of the week and even the weekends as well. Um, and luckily, I was quite good at all of them. You know, I represent the island in all of them as well so I was quite lucky at that but then sort of come to a point at like 15 I thought well I can't really do all these sports anymore so I sort of need to decide which ones I actually want to do so I decided to go with just rugby and cycling Um, and again I was really good at rugby I you know I played at quite a high level you know I went to Castle Russian Mm -hmm. and they ended up playing in Twickenham in the Daily Mail Cup final we ended up winning there as well so that was pretty cool come out at half time and play against 30,000 people was pretty special so you know that was you know that was really proud and was that at 15 that was at 15 yeah um so that was good so initially then at that time it was rugby I wanted to do you know I was playing for Cheshire as well the county and I was doing all that and you know traveling away so I was traveling away doing that and you know but that wasn't just weekends that was going away in the week and obviously games the weekends and you know, it become a little bit too much as well, especially trying to study at school and travelling away all the time doing that. Um, and then I just thought, well, 
cycling always become a bit more natural to me. You know, I sort of didn't have to work as hard. Not that I don't mind working hard, but I sort of was a bit more natural to me. Mm. So I just sort of stopped with the rugby and then just thought, I'll just give it everything with cycling and just see where it takes me, really. And at that 13, 14, 15 age, were you racing locally on the island? Yeah, I was racing locally, yeah. I mean, I was, <clears> you know, I was lucky to have sort of dots. Um, it was Scottish Provident back then. I think it's RL 360 now, wasn't it? Um, mm. So yeah, I was going down there on a Tuesday night, every Tuesday, and I'd be doing a 10 mile of the local 10s on a Wednesday. And then um, I think then the bike styles come around then and I started doing the bike style as well. And then the odd race at the weekend or traveling away, going to races that way. And who was in your age category around that time? Um, locally. Yeah. Um, so I had, so I had Pete Kenyuk. He was a year below me, but whenever I was second year in the category, he'd always be in the first year. Um, so it was me and him, Mark Christian is two years younger than me, so he was never sort of in my category. Um, and we just had like other guys that don't ride anymore, like um, Chris Nicholson. Would he be around your age? He's younger than me again, mm. so he was he didn't really race against me. Um, and guys like Warren Flynn, people mm. like that, and like Ashley Whip, people like that. Those are the sort of guys who are my age. I was racing with locally, and like Christian and Cav, they were. Like Christian's, I think, four years older than me, and Cap's three years older. So again, I never really raced against. It was mainly Pete, really. Like the when they had their hill climb series in the winter as well, we'd always do them. Just sort of be just me and Pete competing for our category mm-hmm. for the win, you know. So it was a uh, you know, it was quite good. And again, like over here, there was all you could always you had that accessibility to be able to train with all the older guys as well. Anyway, so it was always good to have that you just wouldn't race against them so yeah yeah and then at, again during that period you going away off Ireland and racing as well as going off Ireland and rugby um one when I was in the rugby I sort of I'd only go away cycling once a year mm. and that was like the Manchester youth tour so I can't remember what time of year that was but I'd just go away for that so we'd all go away as an Alaman team for like a week and race that that was the only real other than the regional the northwest uh, divs divisional champs they were the only races we'd go away and ride to be honest so but then once i thought i'm just going to go with cycling which was my last year as a ufa so an under 16 that's when i started to commit and go away a bit more mm. so my mum and dad bought a camper van so we'd use that to go away and uh race or the ufa i was gonna go on, i was gonna yeah. ask then yeah the uh parents supportive of both sports at that age then and you do no sports um yeah they were yeah i mean regardless of what sports i do they always support me but they were you know happy and willing to support me and essentially help me on the road to achieve what i wanted to do which was essentially run my bike full-time as a job so and it, so that was actually my next question so then at that that age you thinking about maybe at 15 thinking about i can pursue whatever that career is in, in a direction was that on your mind or was it just I was doing it I was enjoying it and it was a hobby um, essentially I wanted I think deep down it was where I wanted to go as my job and make it a career but again I was sort of a little bit in the unknown I wasn't sure if I did actually have the ability to actually make it so I thought if I have a good winter the winter before my last year as a under 16 and then just give it everything I've got as a first year on the 16 and just see where it takes me and just sort of go from there really and um, 
the first British round that I went away to compete in, it was end of March, I think, and I went there and I won it. Mm. So that was sort of an eye-opener to me in so much as I, I sort of know I've got the ability and I can compete and sort of do this really and sort of take it from there. So I assume looking up, Cav and Christian were probably on the GB development squad at this stage, so you can maybe see a path as well. Yeah, definitely. I think the academy, like my last year on the 16, was I think the first year the uh, British Cycling on the 23 Academy started that year when mm. they were all sponsored by Purcell. Um, oh, right, okay, yeah. So yeah. I think that was that then when that started. And I think a lot of things in British Cycling did start to change because they were very much track orientated and sort of the roadside they didn't you didn't really have a look in that way so i think they sort they did start to look at more road type riders and obviously i never ridden the track before in my life so i wouldn't have a clue if i was even competitive on the track at all so luckily that year as a first year on the 16 the british cycling talent team come over to Alaman to test riders to see if they were obviously capable to get onto the actual talent team so I done the test and I got onto the talent team then, so which is quite good. So it sort of meant we got a, a British cycling coach. We then go away. I can't remember exactly when it was. Maybe once every two months for like a weekend to ride the track, whether it be Manchester or Newport, just to see. Just this is at sixteen. Yeah, just sit on the sixteen, just to try and see where you would be on the actual track. So, um, so those were test specifically for track it wasn't they weren't looking at they were just basically general fitness tests really so you just they had like vo2 max type of test yeah it's like like a ramp test so Mm. you just had to get a certain number Mm. to sort of make the grade to actually get onto the town team so they had a sprint test and like an endurance test i think it was like three minutes and they just look at your average power i think or something Mm. like that so yeah i made that so then i got onto the town team which was pretty good because you sort of Okay, it's not actually a full GB squad, but it's sort of the doors opened in that respect. So the the guys actually working on the sort of like the junior national squad or whether it be the under twenty three, know you're sort of in that mm-hmm. pool of talent. So they sort of look at you a bit more really and sort of monitor your progress during the year. And how did you find that transition from road to track? Um, people often ask, used to ask me this question, um, but. Um, at the end of the day they both complement each other really so i was i my response to that every time would always be well it's racing and riding your bike so i enjoy both really so and i was lucky i found myself i was again quite good at both so that sort of helped and it helped me enjoy that a bit more so um but yeah no i enjoyed riding the track did you have a preference road or track at, at that point when you're going away and doing it thinking i'm like enjoy um, doing this not particularly no i mean i track is sort of more uh, a winter type sport so a lot of the events you know they are in the winter so you know you could work hard whether it be in the gym and then um sort of build your endurance miles and then sort of race on the track at the same time so it'd it'd help your road season in a way as well so you know it was quite good and sort of help keep your mind occupied in the sense of just having a long winter just riding endurance mileage in order to just long and steady and going in the gym so having that variety within your train and then having a race to talk at the same time it sort of helped you know yeah maybe get that racing edge keep that racing edge during the yeah morning. exactly yeah and you just it, you know kept that top end leg speed you know within your legs and then if you're doing that all winter you know you'd find that you're sort of 
your top end speed and your sprint sort of moved on to in comparison to what it was in the road season previously so so then so you mentioned earlier uh, under 16 you went away did the, the first round of the national series won that how did the rest of that year pan out at junior level um well that year again it went well um i won a, another couple of rounds uh the Alaman Youth Tour just started for the first time that year as well. Um, I think that was 2005, yeah, and I finished second overall in that. And I won a stage down at the NSC, right. um, down at the Bowl. So I think it was a split day. I think we had a time trial around the NSC in the morning. Then we had like the crit in the afternoon. I won the crit and then finished second overall. So again, yeah, I was happy with that. I finished second in the National Youth Circuit Race Champs. So... I mean, I was always there, like literally every race I rode, I was in the top five every time. So I knew, um, you know, that potentially I could move this forward. And then especially going into my first year as a junior the next year. Right. And then I presume the the belief then as you're kind of moving on is more and more that there's a potential avenue here to... I use the word GoPro, it's, it's easy to say in hindsight, but continue to develop the opportunity to potentially make a career of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, where I looked at it as well, because a lot of times in a youth category, you know, guys and girls grow at different speeds. So sometimes, you know, you could be riding an under 16 race and somebody has the body of a 25 year old, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of knew that I was, I mean, I wasn't sort of underdeveloped, but I was just sort of growing at a normal pace. So I knew that, you know, the talent I had wasn't just down to me being overdeveloped in any way at all. Yeah. So I knew that. There was something there that I could potentially just keep progressing. That's all I was doing. And essentially, I always say this to a lot of people, you know, I was enjoying it all the time. I can't ever recall looking back in my cycling days, especially as a young rider, thinking, oh, I don't enjoy this. Like literally every bike ride I went on, I was always enjoying it. Every race, I'd always enjoy it. I'd have fun. Okay, be nervous prior to a race because you obviously you wanted to do your best, but I'd never look back and think, I'm not enjoying this because I think, well, what's the point if you're not enjoying it? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not getting paid to ride my bike, so, you know, essentially it's a hobby and I want to enjoy doing it. So That's a, a, an interesting comment, actually, because you see it across all sports and speaking to other sports people as well that uh, that gets sometimes gets a bit lost because they're so focused on, on the sport that it becomes a... They maybe don't even realise, but it becomes a chore, it becomes a messing with the mind because it's, I've got, I've got to train, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, and if it's, you know, it's a ultimate that level when you're at that level early either starting or just doing it as a hobby it's a hobby yeah. you sometimes need to take that step back and realise exactly and enjoy and I think like back then when I was a young rider you know there wasn't all this social media around you know the Instagrams and all these kind of things going on and there was no power meters around you know to be the odd person that had a power meter where they'd be on a pro team so but nowadays it's like completely changed you know it's like I just used to go out when I was young I just enjoy riding my bike I mm-hmm. just do lapped around Boulder and I go down the prom I they used to have these them chain gangs down at the bowl on a I can't remember when it was Tuesday night I think yeah. was it Tuesday night they were great as well yeah. even if you're young you just jump in go down ride down there and just jump on the back of all the older riders and just have a good blast around it was fun and yeah it's changed a bit nowadays so. yeah for sure so so through the junior ranks then you're obviously in the eyes of uh, GB your junior racing I guess more and more in the UK and racing the track during the winter yeah was that all under gb banner or was um well my first year 
as a senior, no, as a junior, sorry, um, I made the qualification standard for the track and the Alamang, because I could race the track and the Alamang, because you only had to be 17, and I was 17, you see. Okay. So I rode the Commonwealth Games on the track in Melbourne in 2006. Okay. So, again, I was on GB then, so I went there. And I was just able to ride the track. So that was what. Did, what was the event you did there? I done the scratch race and the point race. Okay. Um, so How was I, that for an experience? Oh, it was massive. It was really good. Um, I obviously in the scratch race, Cav won gold. So that was obviously pretty special for the team. And then so how that worked was five gained a lap. So Cav was obviously one of the five, and then he won the sprint to win gold. And then I won the sprint of the rest of the group. Okay. And I got sixth. Okay. So to finish sixth in my first Commonwealth Games, you know, seventeen, like 17 yeah. was pretty cool. So I just went there. I sort of think we helped Cav out in the points race and then in the scratch race. You know, Cav won, and then I got a little bonus result for myself as well. So mm-hmm. right. I didn't know you'd gone to the. Where was it? Melbourne? Did you say? Yeah, in two thousand six. Yeah. I do love Melbourne. Great city. Yeah. Yeah, and how, well, say how, how did you feel going into all that? I say you were, again seventeen. Yeah. going to represent against the best there yeah. is out there yeah. yeah I don't know really I was just yeah I just wanted to go there just for experience I mean I was unaware because I was relatively inexperienced in terms of track races so I didn't know if I, could, I was going to just get fired out the arse of the group or be able to actually be relatively competitive so I mean I just went in there just to try and help Cav as much as possible and that's again whether I did go out the back that if I helped him in any way, whatever it may be, you know, I would have thought, well, I'd done my job mm. to the best I could, so I just had to be happy regardless of the outcome, so that's essentially all I could do. So, And was Team Alaman going there that's, at that time? Thinking, trying to think back, obviously Cav had somewhat of a reputation at that, that time, was, but was the mentality of the team is we've got, we've got a medal opportunity here and we're, this is the, the, you know, we're not here to make up the numbers as potential for... Mm. For, for a medal or medals yeah definitely I mean and I think it was after Cav won Madison gold on the track and obviously he won various other titles European titles and national champ titles and we knew that he had the pedigree to potentially win whether it be the scratch race or the point race but more so the scratch because 90% of the time they do finish in a small group or a full brunch sprint and obviously Cav was, he's not bad at sprinting he's a pretty good sprinter yeah <laughs> Not as quick as me. <laughs> um, well, yeah, he's a pretty quick sprinter, so we knew that if he was there in the right position at the right time, that he would potentially win the race. So, yeah. and yeah, obviously representing the islands, I'm sure is a special. I know. Yeah, and it's a yeah, it's a rare occasion as well. So, I mean, obviously, I looked up to Cav as well, and I was, you know, I was sharing a room with him in the games village and stuff. So he was, you know, really good in that respect. He sort of helped me out and gave me lots of advice and mm. things like that, so I could sort of. He was always there. I could always ask him questions, wherever it may be about. So, you know, it was good, great experience. We had, we had such a laugh as well. That we had such a good group of guys that were there as well. It was so much fun. So I really enjoyed it. That that team team things is you know so important, isn't it? Again, cycling's often seen as a as an individual discipline sport, but uh, it's definitely not. Well, it's probably maybe less so now. You look at the bigger teams that all focus on one rider, but at every level, that's the team thing so important. Having that team morale, I guess, as well. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be done. I mean, like the domestiques, you know, guys who work for the team leader within races, you know, 
people who just watch cycling they don't see these guys sitting on the front for hundreds of kilometers you know and then they just see the person who crossed the line with their hands in the air so and there but again that person wouldn't be crossing the line the hands with their hands in the air if it wasn't for them people yeah. previous before it was even shown on tv so they're the ones getting them bottles and things like that so it is very much team orientated which is you know why i sort of fell in love with the sport at the same time as well so and at this time are you still in school or are you kind of full-time now um trying to make at this point i went to college to do my a levels so i was just doing two a levels up there so i was in like three and a half days a week at college that allowed me time to mm. train and ram my bike around that but then I was only in college for like um, 10 months and then I got the call to get on the academy and then I just moved to Manchester and I didn't even take any exams I just moved away <laughs> and just thought forget about it I'll just see what yeah. happens and see if it works out so let's talk through that call did you expect that call could you kind of with your results thinking um well, I knew like like my second year as a junior, you know, we went to the junior worlds and the junior Europeans and, you know, I won European titles and we um we got bronze medal in the world team pursuit and I got second, I got silver in the um world points race as a junior. Um so I knew that I was on the cards of the academy but obviously there's everyone couldn't be selected for the academy, there's only so many places but um, I sort of knew I was pretty confident that I would have a good chance of getting on it, and I did, and I ended up ended up getting on it earlier than everybody else. So I went earlier to ride with another member who was already on the academy to ride one of the under twenty six six day events. So I moved away earlier to Manchester and then competed in a, an event in Amsterdam. Yeah, with him to ride that. So we we eight. What were you late late seventeen, early eighteen? Yeah, I think I turned. Because I made my birth, my birthday's August, so I think I just turned eighteen, and then I moved in September to Manchester to be on the academy. Basically, did it, did it daunt you leaving? You know, I couldn't wait to be honest. I just mm. knew that this is essentially what I wanted to do. So I just wanted to move away and just ride my bike and just be involved in that structure that's been so successful in Olympics and things like that. So that's what I wanted to do really. So and again. Um, just hanging out with guys that are your age and share the same interests and essentially want to achieve what you want to achieve as well. So and is that a house share over there? They dump you in a house. Yeah, Sounds basically. Dangerous. Yeah, so they had in Manchester in Stockport. They had three the uh, no three houses. Yeah, and then we'd all split up within those houses, um, and then we just train round there. Train in Manchester on the road, and then we ride into the velodrome most days as well, and we'd ride the track two times a day and then we'd have food there and then ride it in the evening and then all ride home together so and that's all coach structured stuff that yeah, you'd be yeah. providing yeah Rod Ellingworth he was our academy coach so he'd mm. give you a weekly plan as to what we're going to do each day and do that so and then we'd do that all winter so that'll be from like October till March next year and we'd be competing in all like the track world cups as well so during my first year as well in the academy, we rode Manchester World Cup as a as a young squad. We got third in the World Cup, so we got bronze in the team pursuit, and this was all like live on BBC and stuff mm. like that. So, you know, again, that was like, 
you know, that was amazing, you know, you know, 18-year-old lads on the BBC, like, yeah. going up against Spain for a bronze medal ride, and we all won, and obviously it's a packed-out crowd in Manchester, so the atmosphere was just crazy, so it was a really good experience to be stood there on the podium in the yeah. Manchester World Cup. And you talked earlier about, you know, say racing locally, and you, you get nervous before races here, you're moving up a level, you're live on TV, you're on the start line. If, uh, is that much of that going through your mind? And also in that GB squad, I know they very much you know talk about doing the process and focusing on what you're doing. Do they help you get over the, not get over the nerves, but forget about what's going on around you, that there's you know a packed audience and people on TV watching you? Yeah, essentially, yeah. You just, you know, you go in with a plan and essentially all you do is just, in your head, you're just thinking, right, um, it's Team Pursuit, for example. I know I've got four turns. You know, I just do them at a certain pace and we've got a good chance of winning the right. bronze medal. Quite so, clinical. Quite clinical, yeah. Well, I was I was man one in the Team Pursuit, so, you know, I was coming at the start. Okay, you know, I was taking the team up to speed, so now that's quite an important job, you know, doing that. So, But, you know, I was confident that I had the strength to be able to do that. And, again, I just come out that gate and just focused on doing my job and yeah we won a bronze medal so yeah it's quite interesting yeah it's quite it's interesting that whole uh, blocking out everything that's going on around I assume you were uh, were you nervous before the start of that um, looking back a little bit yeah I mean, As you understandably yeah. yeah um you know i can't remember it's quite a long time ago now <laughs> i can't remember exactly in terms of how nervous i was but yeah i'd imagine i was i mean there'd be something wrong if you wasn't nervous <laughs> so um, but yeah, I was a little bit nervous, but I just knew that I just get out, got to get out that gate and just take the team up to speed, and then just the rest will be sort yeah, of yeah. left on the track type of thing. So uh, that, then you move in eighteen, you're starting to. I guess I'm trying to think when you move into senior ranks at that. So at the end of eight, when you're at the end of eighteen, you then move into senior ranks. Yeah, so eighteen, yeah, you're sort of first year senior. So like first year on the twenty three, so on the academy step up. Um, again, I was wasn't sure. You know, I didn't know what to expect. But well, the academy they had a base in Italy. So in March the following year in two thousand seven, we all moved out to race in Italy. So we just stay in one big house and we all just race and train around there in Italy. I think the four processors of the academy moving to Italy was the Australians have done it for years and they brought through so much talent to the pro ranks I thought they sort of wanted to try the same thing essentially in the end of the day amateur race and in Italy it's the best in the world so if you perform there then you know it's sort of a move on that conveyor belt to sort of make it as a professional road rider and again the races with that high profile if you got sort of a top five in them you know sort of opens the eyes to pro teams saying well this guy's got some talent you know we need to sort of look at him in a bit more detail and see if he's worth signing and um, was that the same group of guys you were with in Manchester yeah those are the same group of guys in Manchester so obviously being on the academy the under 23 it's from when you're 18 to 22 so obviously guys were on there that were older than me and um, so when I moved on I moved on it with like um, like Alex Dowsett Stephen Burke um, and then the guys that were already on it were guys like Ben Swift, Ian Stannard, Andy Tennant. Um, and when you're when you're doing that, is the changes to the team much? Is it kind of like you, if you don't perform well, you might switch up to someone else, or is it? Do they give you a kind of set block of look? You signed up for through to your senior years, and 
Um, well, how work? Because obviously, when you are racing in Italy, there's you know there's a limit on how many you can have in the team, and maybe only six riders. But again, there was like 10, 12 of us on the academy, so everyone wasn't always going to guarantee to sort of be racing every race. So um, it was sort of based on who was going best and who was most consistent, so would ride most of the races. So that's sort of how it worked. Mm. And luckily, I was one of the consistent ones, so I'd. <laughs> So I'd luckily, I'd ride every race, really. So, so, so what year did you move to Italy? That was 2007. Oh, okay. So and how did that first year go racing in Italy? Obviously, I guess a, a jump up in standard. Yeah, it was, Again, yeah. you're racing against, not that you weren't, you know, but men or maybe more mature men as well, just by the nature of being in... Yeah, definitely, yeah. But I think the first year it was, you know, the younger guys were sort of helping the older guys who had already experienced a year in Italy or a season in Italy, um, so the younger riders would just tend to help them, but then as sort of my form sort of moved on, then sort of I would sort of then move into more of a leadership role as well, because obviously you can't be on form all season long, so it's sort of we had to swap it around and work for different riders at different times, so, um, and then halfway through the season 2007, the European track champs and the 23 track champs were we're in Germany, so we moved back from Italy and we went to Newport for a training camp on the track. So we'd be there for a couple of weeks just sort of getting our track legs back and then we'd go to Germany for the European track championships then. And then sort of then after that, we'd then move back to Italy to sort of finish the road season out there. Right. And how were those track champs? They were good, yeah. I mean, um, we ended up winning the Team Pursuit, so we were European champions in the Team Pursuit. And I also wrote... So you're, so you're looking at here a team where it's under 23 and you're 18 in that team. Yeah, so I think it was me, um, Ben Swift, Adam Blythe, um, and Dow set in that team and we won. And, um, yeah. and then me and Ben Swift rode, because we had two places in the scratch race and the points race. So I rode the points race, I don't think... I got anywhere, maybe fifth or something, I can't remember exactly. And then me and Swift rode the scratch race and I ended up gaining a lap with three others or four and then Swift then just helped me then for the the end of the race and then I ended up winning the European title in the yeah. scratch race. It was a bit weird because I was obviously sprinting for the win and I couldn't remember exactly who the riders were that I gained a lap with. So I was sprinting at the end, but then some some Italian decided to sprint full gas for the end. He wasn't sprinting for anyway, he was just sprinting for minor places. And then ended up crossing the line, and I was thinking, have I won here or not? Because this Italian bloke put his hand up, and I'm thinking, I don't think I've won, I think I've come second. I was like, oh, it's a bit disappointing. <laughs> then one guy, one a German guy, who I gained the lap with, he said, oh, he wasn't in the one group that laughed. Yeah. So he said, oh, you've won. So I was like, oh happy days <laughs> so I ended up winning German guy was second and some Russian guy was third but that German guy who was second to me was Roger Kluger okay, yeah. so he um, I think he rides for um, Michelin Scott now and he's been Madison world champion so it's high standard yeah, so yeah. he was he wasn't then but he's gone on in his career to be like Caleb Ewan's lead out man and you know riding all the six days being Madison world champion and I think he's you know, he rides the Tour de France and things like that. So that was the kind of sort of talent I was racing against. And not that I particularly want to jump massively forward in your story right now, but 
where you see those guys doing that now, and you obviously mentioned a load of cyclists there, whether you know cyclists or not, all of those names, Matty and I will know those names, and you're involved in cycling, or even on the peripheral, you'll know those names, they're racing, most of them are pros now. Does it does it bother you now when you see that and think, I could be riding that, or are you comfortable in what's happened, and which we'll obviously go into in a bit more detail in a minute, but are you comfortable where you're sat now and going, well, I, you know, so you lost an opportunity, but there was an opportunity to be doing something else than sat here with us, in this yeah. wonderful studio as good as that is yeah. does, it, does it chip away at your head um, if you don't mind me asking no not at all um, you know you know what happened you know sort of out of my control don't know why it happened but essentially at least I'm still sort of able to do everything I was doing before okay I'm not a professional cyclist anymore but I'm still sort of involved within the sport you know so I mean I I can't look back and think, well, what if that didn't happen? I'd potentially be a world champion, Olympic champion, and be riding the Tour of France. But you, you say that though, but a lot of people do, and it's good that you can box it off and not let yeah. it torture you. Because I'm no, I I try not to let it yeah. torture me. It never sort of bothers me. Right. So so rolling through that year, the tracks towards the end of that year, that you then go to the European Championships for GB. Yeah. Uh, under twenty three. What? Where was that in the world? Uh, that was in. Put you on the spot. In Cottbus, I think Cottbus is it in Germany. Fair geography, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, somewhere yeah. in It was like an outdoor track, so it was like I think three hundred meter track outdoor okay. concrete thing. So, <laughs> but it wasn't a bad thing. It suited me, so I wasn't <laughs> particularly bothered. But yeah, I mean that was good having that in the season because obviously Italy being such you know hilly terrain and being so hot. A lot of us were always focused on, you know, if you didn't perform well in a race, it was down to being too heavy. So you'd just be dieting all the time and just eating basically nothing and around the training and things like that. You know, it was hard, you know, and you'd be hungry and you'd just be sat there on your bed shaking because you're so hungry. But then in your head you think, well, I need to lose a couple of kilos to perform better on the climbs and things like that and be a bit pressure at the end of the races. So obviously track's different. You sort of, you know, your, the effort, the intensity is shorter, but you sort of, you know, the damage you do on your muscles is a bit more, so you, you need to eat a bit more to help your recovery. So I ended up putting on, like, those two, three, four kilos even that I lost. So then when I went, did go back out to Italy in the second year, that's when I felt so much better. I felt fresh because I had I had a rest in a way because the, tra- the track, you're not riding as much on the road, so... I sort of rested a bit. I sort of gained a little bit more rate, so I was I was performing better in the second half of the season out on the road. So, so that's, yeah, out that's in oh eight. Yeah. No, this is in oh seven. Late oh seven. Yeah. So what when you talk about weight, what kind of weight were you? Would be the two. Um, I'd be, I'd perform well anything between seventy and seventy two kilos. Right. You know, if I went any skin skinnier, anything below that, I wouldn't. I wouldn't perform I wouldn't be that strong you know I just wouldn't feel healthy so I sort of try to keep my weight around that way there's quite a lot of focus in GB around yeah there was yeah especially when we were in Italy you know we'd have like skin fold and skin Mm. fold sort of measurements quite regularly just to see where you were but sort of looking back I sort of don't think it is the be all end all of the weight you know everybody's body structure is different you know some some people are going to be bigger than others i mean essentially it's just power to weight really you know if you're comfortable at whether it be 75 kilos and you can f- perform well that's fine you know mm-hmm. just because 
I know Chris Room's sixty eight kilos doesn't mean that you being six eight kilos is gonna work for you, but everybody's bodies are different, so it's just what ever works for you. It's like when I was out there Ian Stanard, he was like eighty five kilos, sometimes even more and he performed well on the climbs. It's just yeah. the power and the engine he had in his body, so more yeah. than trying to drop down and from below that you just be weak then, so so uh, you move into uh, two thousand and eight, still based in Italy, racing. Yeah, because I mean, obviously we went back to Italy in the end of two thousand and seven, and we performed. I started performing well in races. You know, I was doing gaining top tens in these big, you know, UCI races, and then we only had three, three spots because of what we qualified as a nation for um, the World Championship place. We only had three spots in the World Championships at the end of September in two thousand and seven. So the guys that got selected were me, Ian Stannard and Ben Swift. So obviously they were both second year seniors and I was first year. So again, there's no real um, team role or team plan. It was just basically you just survive and see who's there. Experience. And, yeah. yeah, and just see what happens really. So that's the sort of tactics we went into there and then it ended up happening. Um, Ben Swift ended up getting dropped and then he pulled out and then it was just me and Ian Stannard left and then basically Stannard got dropped and then it was just me left in the group and I was just basically there to the end and uh, I remember coming round because it was in Stuttgart in Germany with a lap to go and I heard the commentator say oh one of these guys there's like 30 of us left at this point you know out of like 200 starters because it was quite a hard course it was a rolly course but it sort of super suited me and that's the kind of rider I was um, you know, punchy rider that would sort of sprint at the end. Like the Manx Roads. Yeah, exactly, like the Manx Roads, yeah. So I remember coming around with a lap to go, hearing the commentator saying, oh, one of these guys is going to become champion of the world from here. And I sort of, at this point, I went really nervous then. We come around with a lap to go. I was sort of panicking. I was thinking, oh, I sort of need to sort of move myself to the front if I've got a good chance. Now, come, it was like one kilometre to go, and I was trying to sort of move my way up the group. Then we turned a right hand corner, it was like 400 meters to go, and I was probably about 50th back. Or no, I was, well, obviously it wasn't 50 because it was only like 30 left. I was probably like 20 wheels back, and I sort of moved myself up on the right hand side, and I just sort of put my head down and just give it everything. And as I was going up the finishing straight, I was just passing, passing, passing these people to a point where there was only like two guys in front of me, and I'm thinking, shit, I'm going to win a medal here, potentially, potentially even win it. But the line just come a bit too early, and I'm crossing the line finishing third and I just ended up putting my hands up in the air well one hand thinking like shit I've just got third place in the under 23 world road race championships in my first year as an under 23 and I just couldn't believe it really and that was like yeah I just was so shocked but then that was just like the sort of conveyor belt for me to sort of move on really and catch everybody's eyes where in terms of pro teams and I was sort of in the position where I could sort of decide which pro team I wanted to join. Yeah, right. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. The uh, and what was it like? The sort of emotion then getting on the podium, that kind of thing that most of all never experience. I was or still were you kind of in a bit of shock. Yeah, I mean, I'd obviously been on podiums before, but I did not expect to be on the podium in my first year, especially in the road. You know, I've never been on the podium in a road road world championships before. Yeah. So to do it was really special. And, um, you know, it was the first British male to medal at a World Championships road race in, like, 40 years. So 
the attention I got from that was, you know, it was massive and it sort of led me on to sort of do what I wanted to do from there, really. Because, I mean, I ended up going home, you know, just for a bit of a break. And then I was, again, back out on the academy in Manchester, working hard, building towards what I, want, what I wanted to do and give another go on the road and the under 23s so it was too early to turn pro you know i needed at least another year to then turn pro the next year but i was lucky enough to get asked to go on a csc training camp in that january of 2008 so they wanted to just invite me over and just see what i was like so i was in mallorca with them riding for a week so they just you know that was a cool experience to be able to do that so after getting your position there and saying about attention, how do you deal with that? Was there, was there a lot that you kind of doing that? Was there an expectation or kind of more emphasis on you to be churning out these results now and now pro teams might be knocking on your door and especially, say, at your age? Did it go through your mind? Did you feel extra every time you got on the bike or was it just you kind of let it? Um, I guess like the younger guys, because obviously then they had a new intake of academy riders like that there that year, the next winter, they would sort of look up to me, you know, whereas I moved on to the academy and I'd look up to the older riders, but then then they were looking up to me, so you sort of shared that responsibility in that way. But, um, yeah, I mean, I sort of, I did go a bit complacent that winter, you know, I wasn't sort of as focused as I probably should have been. So, so the guy we were chatting to recently, he talked about maybe ego starts to come in and you can't, get ahead of yourself I guess because yeah you had a, and obviously a brilliant fantastic result yeah and yeah yeah I guess like you say you, yeah, you I, can get complacent around that yeah I had, I had an amazing year in that first year you know I then after the world road race we basically went to the national track champs and I we won the team pursuit and I got like third in the individual pursuit and then third in the point race as well so I got like two medals in individual events and then we won a team pursuit gold as well so you know, looking back, it was like, you know, I achieved everything I wanted to achieve that year. So then when I had the rest and then in the winter, you know, I wasn't, I was focused. I still trained, but I sort of wasn't as focused as I should have been. So I ended up putting on like six kilos in weight. You know, I was, you know, eating too much and not being as sort of focused. Disciplined. Yeah. Being as disciplined, yeah. So then when I went back out to Italy for the road season, and then I'd like six kilos to use, and that's not a quick process. So I was always I was struggling, you know, from the word off in the road season. I wasn't performing as to how, you know, my potential should have done really. And say well, earlier on, you were saying that when you first were cycling younger, it was just you were enjoying it, you know. Yeah. Did that kind so. of start changing then at that point of it? Your mindset being a bit different to just being on the bike to enjoy it um i was still enjoying it but at the end of the day i was an 18 19 year old young lad you know and then i think you just want to enjoy yourself type of thing you know you know we're going out sometimes you know when we shouldn't have done we should have been having an early night folks on the training but you know in the day we're human sometimes you know you sort of needed to let your hair down sometimes but just become a little bit too regular you know Yes. myself and other guys on the academy and then 
obviously that's when you put on weight and then you're not recovering as quickly as you should do from the training and you just sort of burn the candle at both ends really in that respect so you're not getting the best out of yourself so you know but I don't regret doing that at all you know it's what I needed to do so you know I was fine with that and then it just made things a little bit tougher when I did move back out to Italy than they should have been so, so that r- racing season started in Italy 08 yeah. uh, so you're trying to I guess fight lose, lose a bit of weight uh, and uh, that was the year of Beijing yeah. so you ended up through that season in Beijing how did yeah. that come about? Um, then after a couple of months I did start you know the weight did start coming off and I did start losing weight and we, there was five guys on the road to represent GB on the road and I road was always my long term objective and I knew there was potential I could have got a place on the track team in maybe the individual pursuit um, but I thought well because road was always where I wanted to go I wanted to ride the tour and ride the classics and all that. I thought I'll just focus on the road and turn pro at the end of 2008 so I sort of didn't really focus on the track I just moved towards the road so I ended up getting selected for the team in Beijing it was me Ben Swift Roger Hammond and Steve Cummings the team so me and Swift were just there for experience you know and Steve and Roger were this you know they were the other experienced guys were there to help and it was a hard course it was really hilly and it didn't particularly suit me as a rider but I knew I was just there for the whole Olympic experience with the eye on 2012 and um, where then I'd potentially probably go towards more the track than the road you know because I'd have a chance of winning a medal um, so I, we obviously went into Beijing, you know, I'd lost my weight and things like that. And like, I knew I knew I was never going to finish the race. So I thought, well, what can I do to sort of get myself out there and do the best? So I thought I'll try and get in the early breakaway, which is what I did. So I was the only GB rider to get in the early breakaway. So it was like 15 of us. And in the break, there was like guys like Jens Voigt and people like that. So all like big top pros. And I was like this young 19-year-old. <laughs> GB rider so who sort of nobody knew about really so I was you know really happy to make that breakaway it's impo- important as well so I suppose also for non-cyclists who might watch cycling and see these breakaways that last 200 miles and they always get caught near the end and kind of think why but part of that I suppose it's, it's dual one obviously exposure is important but also from a team perspective if you've got teammates back in the group they have an easy ride because they don't have to do any chasing so it's perhaps if there's a German and a Spanish that have missed the break they're the ones doing all the chasing and burning guys so that role of getting in that breaks often missed as well by the general public how important that is as well yeah exactly it just allows your team leader or whoever you're working with to relax a bit more so because the other nation is think well I've got a guy up the road I'm not going to get this breakaway back so it allows them to relax and in my head I just wanted to do it just for exposure for myself I knew it was going to be televised and I knew I was going to be on camera and essentially I wanted pro teams and people to see me that you know I am quite a decent rider mm-hmm. so and I remember it was like a flat loop to begin with and then we got to a big climb and then we do laps of the climb which was like it was like a six kilometer climb then we'd loop back down and then go back up again like every time and I knew once we hit that climb for the first time I was going to go out the arse so um, and it was so hot as well and they had these showers on the climb we were all single file on the left and I remember that a TV camera motorbike was coming down the line so it'd be filming everyone along the line and as it come past me I looked at the camera and just waved mm. at him 
no, bye. That was it, yeah. <laughs> but then everybody said to me, oh, I remember seeing you in the Olympics waving on the camera. It's like, job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everybody yeah, remembers yeah. me then, because I remember that I was in the breakaway and things like that. You know, I'd done a good drive because I was in the breakaway for like, I can't remember exactly, it must have been over 100 kilometres. Yeah. So it wasn't bad for me. And then I got caught by the group and then I just climbed off basically the next yeah. lap. And what was that whole Olympics experience? Obviously, it's amazing, but how, how did you find that? You know, I guess at the time, I'm trying to think of the top athletes within just GB in general. You'll have seen them around the village, I guess. And yeah. was any of that ever, were you ever sort of in awe of being in the same space as people like that? Um, no, it was good in that respect. You know, you'd be going to the food hall and you'd be queuing up for pasta or something, and in the lounge, be next to you, Usain Bolt would be next mm-hmm. to you, you know, just people like that. And you see Farrah walking around the thing, and you see, but it was, it was quite funny because obviously there's so many different events and obviously people are different shapes and sizes for these events so it was quite you spend time guessing oh they might do a, yeah they're definitely a gymnast because yeah. they're so small yeah, yeah. but or whether it be rugby sevens play or whoever it is so no it's quite quite a cool experience but at the end of the day you being there you know is justified you know you are one of the best mm-hmm. if not the best one athletes within the country at your sport at what you do so he didn't really feel out of place in any way at all. So you just respect everybody that's around you, really. So it's quite cool. It's Again, it's not... Because I've been to the Commonwealth Games before, that like, it's not much different to the Commonwealth Games. You know, the villages are the same, the food halls, you know, how it's all set out. It's just a level up because it is the Olympics. Yeah. So. so so at the end of end of 08, then, you're looking at... You've obviously pretty pretty strong belief now you can get a pro contact, go pro... Uh, it's a career path for you. Yeah. You ultimately signed for Saxo. Were there other teams looking, speaking to you? There was other teams, yeah, like a couple of Spanish teams and Italian teams, but I knew they were the best team in the world. They'd been the best team for the last like six, seven years, and they had all the best riders on their squad, so I knew I'd have, they were looking for a British rider as well, and I knew they were the team I wanted to wanted to join, so... I signed my contract and then I rode with them for the last part of 2008 um, when I rode the Tour of Britain with them and then I rode um, Franco-Belge, which was a, a stage race in Belgium at the end of the year. And again, obviously, another, ultimately another step up. How did you find those first races in a pro peloton? Yeah, it was good. I mean, Tour of Britain was, you know, it was good. I was really focused on I wanted to perform and show that I am worthy of a place on the team. Um so I mean the guys who was on the team with me in the Tour of Britain they've had a long year you know they've been riding pro races all year round and they're pretty tired so they were just working for me which was which was great so then I could just do the best I could with them working for me which is great to do for your first pro race as a pro rider basically so I mean I had Guy Matt Goss in the team Stewie O'Grady Lars Back and Chris Anker Sorensen so it was a five man team and me and I, they were all working for me. And these these guys, you know, Stuvio Grady, Paris Bay winner, Olympic champion, and Gossi was the same. You know, these are all top top riders. They're all working for me essentially. So mm. it's you know it's great feeling and great for the morale. And you know, and I performed really well as well. I had like two top five finishes on stages, and I was twelfth overall in the end. So it was. No, so you obviously didn't feel like um, you weren't clearly out of your depth either. That's no, I wasn't up. out of my depth at all. Um, so you know, I was pretty happy with that and it 
it was sort of confirmation for them that they made the right decision in so much as signing me to turn pro with them. So, so you go into then going pro full time with Saxo uh, in uh, 09 then, yeah. up in the start of 09, that first pro season. So early yours, I presume you have training camps and then they put a, put a race calendar together. Do you get much, I assume that's the case, and do you get much input into that, that, that first year as a pro or do you kind of just get told what to do and um, do they give you much sort of are you allowed to have objectives or is it look your first year we expect you to do this this and appear here and be there yeah first year um, you know we had the training camps and stuff we had one in Mallorca and then we had no we had one in Denmark in November so the, the season before which is like um, sort of like an army type camp so it's like a base camp type thing where it's just like a team building camp so we do we like being army barracks and stuff and they got woken up at like three in the morning when we're all in bed and we'd go into the back of these army trucks and just dropped in the middle of nowhere and we'd have to find ourselves and get to a certain point and were you just thinking oh, this isn't riding a bike yeah well <laughs> it was so good it's such a great way to sort of get to know people you don't know and you have a laugh as well at the same time so that was that was really cool and i remember we were just walking for like 12 hours straight yeah. and it was like we'd obviously because it was like so many members of staff and riders as well. I think there was like 30 riders on the squad. We'd obviously all be split up in groups, but it was really good fun. I mean, really, I really enjoyed that. It's a great way to sort of get to know everyone. Mm. And obviously it's hard as well, so it's not just sitting around doing yeah, 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 type yeah. of thing. And, and the, I meant to ask when we were talking about moving to Italy, but then in that scenario as well, you're dealing with many nations. Language-wise, I assume always principally it's English, everyone's speaking, is it? Do, yeah, you, do you pick was, up? English was the first language, right. yeah, so everybody spoke English. Did you m- pick up much other language during those times away? Not particularly. No, no. Um, Everyone's just trying to tune into your Man- Manx accent. Yeah, exactly, Manx is person, apparently. <laughs> um, but yeah, the only thing they couldn't understand is why English people put milk in their tea. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing they were sort of a bit like, why are you doing that? Well, yeah, I don't drink any tea anymore. I did back then, don't know why. <laughs> um but yeah, I think that was the only thing. But everybody spoke English, which is perfect. You obviously pick up bits yeah. now and then, but not enough to be able to speak yeah, any yeah. other languages. Yeah. Just um, point, point and just grunt. point go. Yeah, yeah. Put your finger towards your mouth. I yeah. want that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I was lucky because when we were, when I was my first year as pro, they always run like three programs. You'd have like the top program, and then like with the A team essentially well like the Grand Tour riders they're sort of brace pro and then you have the classic riders and then you have the young group so I was obviously in the young group for guys that sort of just turned pro and we'd all race the smaller races together and sort of so then we could sort of play domestic role or sort of move into a leadership role because if we were in the other higher sort of teams that were doing the bigger races we'd just be domestics all the time yeah, so, yeah, yeah. which is fine but just part again and next yeah, stage of development. It's, yeah, it's part of what it's about being a pro, you know, sort of learning your trade and sort of I was in that younger pool of riders. So when I was there, I had like Alex Rasmussen, he's retired now, Michael Moorcock, he rides for Quick Step. So guys like that, they were the guys that I was in the sort of smaller team with them and we were just doing all like the smaller pro racing and sometimes if we were going well, we'd jump into the other squads and ride with them. It was good though because it gave us the opportunity to actually perform like in, I can't remember exactly which race it was, I had a jersey, you know, I was in the points jersey and performing really well and, um, you know, like, it gave me the opportunity to ride um, San Sebastian, you know, I rode that in my first so, year. Yeah, so for those non-cyclists, 
it's one of the big classic one day racing races uh, in August. San Sebastian not surprisingly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's after the Tour de France you get a lot of Tour de France riders riding that so I rode with that and rode like Andy Schleck he was in the team and that as well and so it was yeah it was good mm. and, and um, so that's out that's through 08 this is 09 09 sorry yeah, yeah. sorry no, no yeah Olympic yeah, yeah. So, just just a quick question, just to, obviously, just we have some general show notes to chat about stuff, but just kind of cro- crossing in my mind there when you, you mentioned Rasmussen, and it just immediately springs into mind. I can't remember if it's the same Rasmussen. It was ultimately, it was certainly Rasmussen done for doing drugs for he won the tour. No, I don't know whether it was a different, no. but it just reminds I suppose, looking back now, was that something? Uh, obviously, it's a massive shadow, certainly historically, of the sport. It's moving on sort of very well, I suppose, now, but was that something? you were aware of at the time within the sport was that something that was ever talked about or seen or maybe you don't want to talk about it I don't know um, i never seen anything sort of dodgy going on when I was involved I think like then when I turned pro it all sort of cleaned up in that sense yeah. you know because neo pros Cav for example who are clean were able to jump straight in and win so many races like Cav in his first year as pro I think he won 11 races and that was unheard of back then when it was you know quite you know, drugs were sort of a thing a lot of cyclists were to take. Yeah. Um, so that was unheard of, you know, because... Did you get many questions over you getting interviewed by media and stuff like that? Was there much... Because there seemed to be a phase sort of watching from the outside where there was always an accusation around... And I'm not asking for accusation, you know, I just ask out of interest because, yeah, there seemed to be often insinuate, you know, you you know, you really, you know, just insinuations around it. Not everyone was on it, but it was still a problem in the sport. Did you ever feel that from the outside? A little bit, yeah, because when when I joined Saxabank for the first year, Alberto Contador signed for Saxabank as oh. well. So he was on it. And during that season in 2008, he tested positive. I can't remember for what it was. Um, you know, I can't remember what some substance he tested positive for. So all that was going on. Was that the beef incident? Yeah, the beef incident. Yeah, yeah. So all that was going on then. So obviously that was all yeah, yeah. overshadowing everything as well. So And is that something talked about at a team or team level, as in you're around a table and I appreciate he's not going to sit there and say, I've got a positive, well, maybe he does say, I've got a positive test. And, and does he try and defend his position in front of, in front of his teammates? No, or not or nothing? No. It's just sort of was between, we never really team heard. And him. It's just basically the manager to be on a Reese and him mm. and the press guys that would talk about that. We'd never talk about it. Right. Just because we didn't really need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His thing he's dealing with. It's yeah, not, right. Yeah, yeah. It's not really going to affect us in any way, yeah. hopefully, which it didn't do. So So, so the, the first season ends as a pro, I presume generally happy with it. That initial contract was that a year, just a, a year old? Two years. Two every year, time right. you sign pro, you always get a two year contract. Okay. But, um, yeah, but my first year as pro in the September, so I was on the long list for the Worlds, that's when I had my accident when right. I was living in Italy, so I obviously didn't really have yeah. a second year. Well, so, I did, sort of. <laughs> so, so, obviously, a, a massive event in your life, uh, that accident, uh, not quite talk us through it, but you were obviously based down in Italy, yeah. had a motorbike accident, uh, I assume went straight to an Italian hospital. Yeah. What was the initial prognosis? Can, um, you, can you remember the accident? Oh, yeah, I remember everything really clearly, yeah. I just remember I was out having food with Cav, um, and then he ended up going home after we had food, and I said, I'll go in, I need to go into the toilet to pay the bill. 
So I went in and I left on my little Vespa skirt. It's literally like five kilometers from the town we lived in. So obviously he went. And I just said I'll see you for training at ten o'clock tomorrow morning. Um, and I was just it's just basically a big long straight road. There's nothing technical about it. No houses or anything around. And I was just driving along, probably five minutes from getting back to my apartment. And I just remember getting hit from behind. So I just remember getting hit, like going up in the air. And then that was it. Mm. Car, I assume. Yeah. Mm. So I've obviously got hit from behind, run over, and then just sort of left mm. over the road. Yeah, the, 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 guy, the guy, girl, whatever, don't just know. didn't no, stop. Know. Never know to this day. No. Wow. Right. So who finds you? Don't have a clue. Right. I don't know. What's your next recollection? Um, sort of waking up in hospital, really. Day, two days, like when was that? Oh, it was like, because I was in a coma for a month. Six oh, weeks. Wow. So it was a bit after that. But when I did woke up, wake up, I just thought I was only in there overnight, and I was I was unaware of what actually went on. Really, you know, my head was sort of all over the place and didn't have a clue what was going on, or, why or, or how, or or team with you, or is it um, parents or? Well, because I lived in Italy, it was just me there. But then when it happened, um, my parents got a call. Mm. And just said, you best come to Italy because Johnny's had an accident. It's not looking good. We think he's going to die. Right. Wow. So then they obviously come to Italy. And then they said that he, we think he's going to live, but he'd be sort of quadriplegic, you know, sort of for the rest of his life. Um, so. Um, you spoke to them much about what they went through at the time. Well, I think they're still obviously affected by it now, obviously, because as a parent of that happening to your child it must be horrible you know especially being here on the Isle of Man and they're in Italy and potentially going to die you know and then they turn up thinking oh we're here now and they say oh you know he may live but he's sort of not going to be very well for the rest of his life so you could only imagine can you that it's in some ways almost worse for them than you yeah. a plane journey out there travelling oh, to, to what yeah to what you know like you say for their to travel for their son see their son yeah I mean I can't imagine what they went through so obviously pretty shit time you know and during that induced coma they by your bedside yeah yeah up till the time you woke because up because I was in intensive care it would, there'd only be like half an hour slots per person so they couldn't obviously just sit by my yeah, side yeah, all no, the time yeah. But there's like everybody dying around me in the hospital, and there's me still surviving. Um, then I did start. You know, I had you know I had operations. You know, on my head because I shattered. Yeah. So tell us what you did break, or maybe you go through the list of what you didn't break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the thing, the funny thing is though, like before my accident, I never broke a bone in my body in my life. So you and made I, up for it in one go. Yeah. So in one go, I just probably break the most important one. Um. So I fractured all my face so nose cheekbones eye sockets and I smashed the left hand side of my skull and the fragments of the bone went into the sack of my brain and then I had a blood clot on the back of my brain and on the front and so I had they had to operate on me so they cut me from one side of my head to the other pull my face down and put put a metal plate here on the left hand side of my face so I've got a metal plate here now just to obviously through the airport yeah through the airport. Before, it's, it doesn't actually happen though 
Mm. Don't know why. Um, and um, yeah, so I put a metal plate there, and then I fractured my sternum, um, and I damaged my um, what's it called? My nerve here. Damn you, like damn you. Damn my calf. Yeah, it's the perineum, isn't it? nerve so I damaged that nerve there doctor school yeah and um, so I had like a drop foot so obviously when I did become try to get stronger that was always stopping me from walking probably because my foot was just basically tripping me on the floor Mm. Um, but then I was sort of once I got operated on I was coming through all that um, I was obviously being fed by the peg tube in my stomach um, so obviously I needed to eat in some way and um but in Italy, they sort of do things a bit different. They don't put the peg tube through your mouth. You know, so it did get misplaced. They would just attach it back together through your mouth. But they just basically put a like a hose pipe in my stomach and basically fed everything through there. Mm-hmm. Now, because I was on so many drugs and stuff, and I was just having such mad, crazy dreams, I was pulling this. I pulled this tube out, and um, then they put it back in my stomach. Well, stomach. They attempted to put it in my stomach, but didn't put it into my stomach. So all the food that they were pumping in wasn't going into my stomach. So apparently, I don't really remember this. Apparently, I just went grey. I went grey, and my Adam's apple went like the size of a cricket ball. And um, so infection inside. Yeah, so I got infected. So I got peritonitis, and then they had to basically emergency operate on me. So I nearly died from the head injury, and then they nearly died from the stomach problem as well. So they had to cut me open, and that's when I lost so much weight. Um, so I went from like 70 kilos to 45 and I was just skin and bone thinking I'm going to be a good climber now yeah yeah (laughs) Um, so I've seen some pictures I can I'm sure you can google the pictures uh, yeah I've got loads I can yeah we'll we'll share them out on social media yeah yeah because I've got because my dad sent me loads of like videos that he had on the laptop of me walking for the first time and you know I got like massive bed sore on the back of my head obviously because I've laid back from, uh, for so long and then now I've got scars on the back of my head things like that but how, I used long, to, how long were you in the hospital for in total then? I was in hospital from it happened my accident was the 19th of September so obviously I went to hospital then <laughs> <laughs> and then I walked out of the Wellington in London in the end of March 2010 so 6 months 7 months in hospital yeah, when did they ship when did they ship you back to the UK? Yeah, so they flew me back in a doctor's plane after two months in Italy. And I went to the Princess Grace first in London. And then I went to the newer rehab place after there in the Wellington. And I was there for like two or three months, you know, doing all my rehab. You know, learning how to walk, talk. Because obviously, because of my brain injury, it affected my swallow and things like that. So I didn't have the strength to swallow food. So I had to gain strength to do that again. I had to learn how to stand up, walk, and everything again. So, and were you? Is there a point where I suppose you wake up and you know, not say that not the drugs wear off, but you become conscious enough to to know then that that you've just got this massive battle ahead of you. I guess that you think you're thinking. Um, So talk about thinking about you know learning to walk again. That's it's just a bonkers, it's a no, bonkers it was, thing it was to... horrible man. you know it was not even just to do the simple things like brush your own teeth couldn't even do that to have somebody to shower me and like you know it was horrible I didn't even have the strength to sort of 
lift myself off the bed nothing like so 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 skinny and so weak it was just horrible and, uh, you know just walking to the toilet you know these are things on a daily basis you just take for granted and then mm. when it's sort of taken away from you it sort of realize how hard it is and then being in a wheelchair for so long and being pushed around and things like that you know it was a pretty hard time but in my head all i was thinking was i just my focus like through the rehab i just treated it like i was training on my bike in the sense that whatever i was doing during the day I was, my long-term goal was just think i just want to get out and just get back onto my bike and that sort of helped me through the process because i knew that you know i still had a contract with the team and i knew they were going to be good and give me the time to sort of build myself back up so is that does that do you think looking back when you look at you talked earlier about uh, being in the gb squad and you know you're just about to go on tv and you're just working through your process of i need to do this this is my job focus on this kind of ignore everything around it just applying that same to this which is a different race of, of a guy and different fight yeah and it just needs that, that same process that same mentality yeah basically yeah because i knew that whether i'd be doing physio occupational therapy speech therapy whatever it was i knew if i give it everything i've got i know that i'll get to essentially where i want to be after so that's the sort of mentality i went in there with that you know and then i had like a patient i got friendly with in there who who then asked me for advice you know johnny can you give me any advice how i'm going to be able to walk again and things like that so i'd sort of you know i'd become somebody in there that other patients would look up to in hospital because they'd see how quick i was sort of moving forward and they sort of wanted to understand why and i just talked to them like i've just said to you yeah, yeah. how i've improved so quickly so do you think uh underlining you would you say you're a driven person i think so yeah i think you know i am i get i get bored very easy so I always have to sort of focus on something. Is that you telling us to wrap this up? No, no not at all. I, I, yeah, again, if I was bored, I'd just tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm quite, no, I do struggle to relax and do nothing. I always have to do something. Yeah. Not just pointless things, you know, I sort of, once I'm working or working towards a certain goal, I give it everything I've got, you know. Whatever it may be. So in that aspect, then, did you kind of, in essence, like surprise the doctors around there on how quickly you were able to recover? Were you were you on a longer time frame to actually be able to get back to where you wanted to be, or was that you driving, saying, you know what, as you said, there's the, I'm going to put 100 percent and get back as soon as possible. Yeah, I think a lot of doctors and nurses and that they always write you off, don't they? They always got worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. So I just. I just knew if I just was a focus on where I wanted to be, if it didn't happen, it didn't happen, but I'd then not regret it. I'd just work hard towards it and then try and get there. Again, it may not have got, got me there, but if it did, then great. If it didn't, then... Was there an element of you actually not being able to get there? You know. Um sometimes i had to be a little bit patient in so much as you know i sort of had to take things slower during the rehab then whereas i wanted to just sort of yeah, yeah. Go, go. Yeah. be able to run around the corridor straight away but obviously that wasn't never going to happen so i just had to take things slowly so obviously i was so weak as well i get tired so easy as well you know i'd regardless around what i was doing i'd just be sleeping all the time because obviously my body's recovering so you know it, 
even little things just walking to the toilet or walking to the physio room it would take it out of you you know so um, I just had to be focused and patient and just take my time with where I wanted to go but when I did leave hospital in that March time the woman on reception said to my dad you know I've never seen anybody walk out of here mm. you know because most of the people that do go in there they always just end up coming out in yeah, wheelchairs yeah. so you know, well, it shows the hard work paid off yeah mm. well, I don't know I mean I guess I did work hard but I don't know yeah, I'd, say, I'd say so I think you've, yeah. it's sometimes hard to self-reflect and see that but it's clearly the reception is saying that to you and clearly back the September before you were yeah. not in the greatest shape in the world yeah. yeah but then like when I did come out of hospital obviously I still I was recovered enough to be discharged but I wasn't I was still it took me like two years after that to actually recover properly I was still weak I was still really skinny I still looked ill you know, even though when I come back to town, man, everybody's saying how, how well I looked. I'm like, why are you lying to me? I don't look well, clearly, you know. I'd rather you just say, oh, you look terrible, Johnny. Don't say to me, oh, you look really well, Johnny. Well, maybe in comparison to... Yeah, six months earlier. Six months yeah. earlier, yeah, maybe that's what they meant. But, yeah. Uh, so I did, yeah, it took me a while. And I remember my first road ride on the Isle of Man. Yeah, and I said to my dad the night before, I'm going out with a club run tomorrow. Which again is a beauty about the Alaman, you know, there's somebody out <laughs> at the NSC gates every morning. Whether it just be one or two people is better than riding on your own sometimes. Um said to me, Dad, oh, I'm going out on the club run tomorrow. And he looked at me and he goes, Why are you shy going out on the club run? He said, You won't be able to keep up. So I was like, I will. I said, I'm fine. Um, he's like, I'll tell you what. I said, What we'll do is we'll go to Braid around the Stugadoo circuit. Um, Stugadoo. <laughs> Manx, Manx. That's Manx. in the Alaman for those overseas listeners. <laughs> yeah. It's spelled S to no, no, Yeah. Do, yeah. Mm. Um, so I thought, he goes, oh, we'll go around the Stugadoo circuit. I'll drive out in the car and then I'll follow you behind the car. I was like, yeah, okay, no worries, whatever. In my head, I'm thinking, oh, I'll do at least five laps. Can't remember how long it is. It's about a six, seven mile circuit. Yeah, yeah six, yeah. seven mile circuit. So I thought, I'll do that. And literally got on my bike. And I was so, so weak. I literally didn't have the strength to get out of the saddle. I thought I was going to get blown into the hedge as well, because obviously it's so windy all the time on the Alan Man, and I'm so skinny. Either I was going to get blown over the hedge or dropped a fall down a grid. <laughs> so I carried on, and I was like, literally after one lap, I was absolutely bollocks, and I thought, I'm going to stop here. Like, but then I thought, well, no, I can't do this one lap. I'll do at least another lap. Prove me dad wrong. Yeah, prove me dad wrong. I'll just keep going until I actually drop off the bike. Um, but yeah, I'd done two laps and I was so, so tired after. And that was a big eye-opener in the sense that I was... thought, well, shit, I have got a long way to go here. And I just need to take things step by step and maybe gain a bit of strength in the gym or on the indoor training before you can think about going out on the road again. And what month was that in the year? That was April. Okay. Yeah, so you've only been out of hospital a month. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. I come out at the end of March. I think it was like two weeks after. <laughs> oh, that's all right then. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> So just going back to, you mentioned earlier about speech, learning to speak again. What, you know, is that speech therapy, etc. Is that, you know, as stupid as the question might probably sound, you know, you, it, I don't know how to, you obviously know how to speak, but it's just, is it just retraining your vocal cords? The information's in your head, you just yeah. can't get it out, I assume. Yeah, basically, yeah, because obviously I had a tracheostomy for so long that obviously affected it as well. And I just, when I was talking, I'd just get loads of mucus and stuff, and I'd just be, like, coughing all the time, and, like, just felt clogged up, you know, like that cold-type feeling in your throat. So I just, as I, my throat got stronger, 
then I was just able to speak more. I was quite nasally. I was always, I still am a little bit nasally now, but like I it just sound like I was just full of like a blocked nose all the time when I was talking. But then as over time, then obviously it's got stronger. I've been able to talk a bit more clearer <laughs> and understand me like when I was talking before like my mum and dad couldn't understand me because it was just, just like grunting all the time mm-hmm. they couldn't actually hear me properly then again as time gone on I just gained more strength and I was able to talk more clearly and that's even applies with the walk and like even when I did come out of hospital okay I was able to walk but I was still a bit doddery you know and like not walking as a normal person would walk and it took me like two years to get that back you know let alone trying to ride a bike for a living at the same time as well so it was a combination of things and just building that strength up and building up the confidence and um yeah it's just yeah it was it was hard but it went relatively quick and just saying there how long it's taken you to get to that stage what were Saxo like with it were, were they pressured or they were understanding they, they were really 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 supportive they were so supportive, you know, like Bjarne and a guy called Trey Greenwood, who was one of the CEOs of the company as well. They flew to London to see me and they supported me through the rehab, you know. You know, I, I'm always thankful and grateful for that. Um, GB, not so much, which was surprising. You know, I was, um, you know, one of Britain's next best riders coming through the rank. You know, I was... I had so much potential to achieve what, as a GB rider, would be paid to achieve, you know, you know, mm-hmm. I was one of the best guys, you know, so Saxo re-signed me for another year, and then Team Sky were going to set up the, um, the team the next year, and um, <coughs> Sky promised me to buy me out my contract and sign me for that when they were going to start. So my, because Brailsford was in Italy with Shane at the time because they were setting up Sky. My dad said to Brailsford, he said, are you going to still stick by Johnny and support him? Dave was like, yeah, yeah, no worries, we'll stick by him, support him. And, you know, he's still got a place on Sky. And um, basically, they just walked away from me. Mm. Didn't support me at all, didn't give me... The only thing they did support me was with a, a nutritionist, but... It's not massive support, really. You know, when I needed to be over in Manchester doing all the rehab there, still, even after coming out of hospital, I still needed to continue all that because I wasn't at full strength yet. So I did need that support. And, um, but all that, the only people they were interested in supporting was, um, what's his name? The rower Cracknell, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember, he had that accident during the yeah. Ram race across America yeah. and he had like a bad head injury as well. Yeah. They were, they had him in training him, getting him back to full strength rather than helping me, you know, which I was a little bit disappointed with, and then I ended up getting kicked off the GB plan because obviously it's a performance thing, and if you don't meet the grade, then unfortunately there's you're no place to do two laps of stuck a do. Then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I thought that was the grade, but <laughs> <laughs> clearly not. So um, I uh, was then sort of put to one side with GB but then I was still with Saxobank for another year and that was hard and again all I was doing is going to races and just surviving the race and just trying to finish and then that 
sort of took the enjoyment yeah. out of riding for me. You know, I wasn't racing, I was just there surviving. And obviously I didn't get my contract renewed after then, but I I still sort of wanted to still cycle at that point, but then I just went to... Did you think you still had it? Do you think with all I think battles? physically, yes, I still could have made it back to where I was before. Okay, it would have took, taken a long time, understandably, but I don't. But just something inside me mentally just didn't want to do it before. And I just sort of kept going with smaller, mediocre teams because I knew nothing else other than cycling. Obviously, I left school early. Cycling's been my life for so many years. I was thinking, shit, what, what can I do within my life now? You know, I'm screwed in that sense. Mm-hmm. But that's when I sort of sat down and thought, well, I still, okay, I want to step away as a rider, but I still want to be involved in the sport in some way. You know, I've gained a lot of experience in my short career. You know, I think I'll be able to help other people out. That's when I started of, sort of then getting my coaching qualifications with British Cycling, so I was able to start to help and provide training programs with people with the long term of moving then into a team role and sort of being a bit more hands-on and moving on, you know, being like a director sportif or like a manager of a team, whether it be women or men. So did you started studying those coaches before you retired? Uh, basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just so I had something to sort of fall back on. But then I thought... I don't want to live on the Alaman at this point. I thought, you know, there wasn't a lot of opportunities for me, what I wanted to do mm-hmm. here. So I thought I need to move away. So that's when I applied for a coaching job in London at the Olympic Park there in Stratford, you know, coaching sessions and things like that. And I thought, if I get the job, then I'll just move to London and just see how it goes, basically. And that's what I've done. So what year was that would be now? Um, either 2014 or 2015. Yeah. So, Cause my last, I think, I think because I, I went to the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, I didn't race, but I went there. That obviously wasn't a plan, but I just wasn't good enough to make the team. So that was when I thought, you know, I'm stopping now and then. And how do you fall out of love with the sport to a point? For a rider, yeah. yeah. For racing. Yeah, I just didn't. I just had no motivation about and train. You know, I'd look at my training program and it'd be like five hours and be like, do not want to ride five hours, let alone five minutes on my bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a shame, isn't it? And that, do you think that's just from because you've, you know, four years earlier that you're climbing up this. You know this mountain, and suddenly you're five levels further down, maybe, or you know further yeah. down, and the battles just worn you out, maybe. Potentially, yeah, I think unaware to me at the time. Hmm. I think the whole hospital process and the rehabilitation it probably took it out of me mentally more than I actually realised at the time. You know, it was, you know, it wasn't easy. And then you're seeing all these guys that you were racing with, you know, achieving all these great things, and then you know, like Olympic champions and things like that, and then you're like, well. If I didn't have this, I would have been an Olympic champion now, a world champion. But maybe that did take its toll. But I just didn't have the drive to yeah. want to do it anymore. And I thought, it's too hard a sport, like most sports are, to just do it for the sake yeah. of it because you're getting paid. So that's when I started looking at other avenues to get in. Um, so it was December 15, you formally announced your retirement. Yeah. Uh, was that, when you kind of consciously made that decision, did you... Did it feel like a weight off your shoulders? A little bit, yeah. Because, I mean, I was on a coaching course at the time. I flew over to Wales to do a three-day course in Newport. 
and it was literally the night before I was starting that course, that's when I thought I'll announce it to say Johnny Bellis is no more within yeah, the cycle, yeah, yeah. well, competing anyway. Yeah. So, so, the, so the coaching starts, do you find that rewarding? Yeah, I did, yeah, especially when people start improving and it is down to you. Well, who, like, who are you coaching? Um, I'm or just whatever. coaching like guys from just across in the UK. No one sort of big, but clients are clients at the end of the day. I mean, it's just a lot of people I coach are sort of just average riders, you know, do like sportives and things like that, but they just want to regain that enjoyment again from cycling. You know, I've had coaches previously and they've obviously taken it too seriously, stopped enjoying riding the bike and then they just stop and then they don't ride the bike again. And they just want to work towards something else with a different coach and a different outlook because coaching's not it's not rocket science you know anybody can uh, apply you're only selling your services now Johnny <laughs> no but I'm just saying yeah. like people can write down a program and say do this but I, I think communication with your rider is so important um, you know and it's not just about providing a plan you know you're there for somebody to talk to you know oh, Johnny I felt shit today is there a reason for that or whatever it may be you know it's about giving somebody morale and I've got experience on both sides when things have because the thing with cycling 99% of the time things are shit things are hard but that 1% where you do get a result or achieve something that you want to achieve it, it's so satisfying it mm. makes them time so much more worthwhile so you know it's about getting people through that and as long as they're enjoying it that is the most important because if you're not enjoying it what's the point you're paying somebody to provide you a plan if you're not enjoying it why, why waste your time yeah, yeah. take up another hobby take up fishing or darts or something you know it's like you don't it's a have bit to, less stressful yeah. yeah you don't have to cycle you don't it's just do something you enjoy doing do you ride a bike much now um i do now and then i'm not just a fair weather rider so <laughs> doesn't happen very often over here <laughs> but i i take um like what bike classes up at cycle 360 twice a week so i enjoy doing that and yeah. they're good fun as well so I enjoy doing them, and at the minute, that's my only riding I do, and I just go to the gym now and then. But, like, I'm lucky I don't sort of put on any weight. It's like my metabolism's changed since my accident, for some reason, since my brain injury. So, like, before, when I was a rider, I was quite a big, stocky rider for a cyclist, but now I'm sort of the opposite, so it's like I have a super quick metabolism, and I don't really put on any weight, which is a good thing. And the fact that I've lost my smell and taste sensation since my oh, really? accident yeah um you don't sort of crave rubbish food in any way right so that's a good thing as well you know for all the sensations you could lose smell and taste is not it's not so bad so it's just not very good if there was a fire somewhere and you obviously wouldn't smell it yeah well yeah yeah when yeah. the old man was was a fireman so yeah no, yeah. no following down his foot, footpath no not at all so so then uh communicating with you with the guys you coach you a lot of that online i guess and they're dropping your emails texts, yeah and, you know or just by what whatsapp yeah text yeah. things like that but um you know i would you know i would be open to sort of get more involved with the team in the future whether it be sort of taking alaman teams away whether yeah. it be island games commonwealth games things like that you know because i think Having someone like me in a team car, you know, I sort of know how it all works, and yeah. you know, I think, you know, I'd be quite a good person to have, whether it be a debrief or a brief before a race. You know, I sort of tactical wise, I sort of know what to do, so I think I'd be quite valuable in that respect. For sure. 
So, so then just looking generally back on your cycling career, you seem obviously very proud of what you achieved up to the, mm. well, throughout that, throughout that time. Yeah, definitely, 100%. I mean, what I achieved, okay, my career was cut short and it didn't, it wasn't as long as I would hoped it would be. You know, obviously, I'm 31 now, would have been still riding now for sure. But I can look back and think, well, what I achieved in that short career, you know, people wouldn't even think, dreaming of achieving. So, again, you know, going to the Olympics at 19 is, you know, a massive highlight. You know, I've won national championship titles, medals in the world championship, European titles. You know, it's, um, you know, it's massive if I look back and not many people can say they've achieved what I've achieved. So, um, you know, I just like to stay involved within the sport yeah, and just yeah. pass my experience down and help other people, really. I was going to talk then, yeah, just, you mentioned just briefly a moment ago about what what's next. So, yeah, just continue to coach riders. Yeah, continue yeah. to coach riders and just, again, within cycling, you know, nothing's ever guaranteed whether you're in a team as a rider or as a manager or whatever it may be but I'm sort of open to any opportunities really and if it suits me then great so um, and if people want to get in touch with you talk to you about yeah coaching, coaching things like how, that. How, how do they get involved how do they um, just send me an email basically if um, they just go on my website and they can just send me an email yeah on that thing called insta yeah, well, I'd, yeah, or just email me info right. at bellascoaching.co.uk. Yeah, okay. we can put links up and yeah, yeah, we'll put some links in the footnotes. Yeah, and then if whatever it may be, it doesn't matter because a lot of people always say to me, Oh, I don't think I'm good enough to be coached by you. Well, it doesn't matter. A plan's a plan, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you're riding a Tour de France or you're just riding a local sportif once a year, it's fine. It's it's just giving you that structure around what you do. Yeah, and if you say to me, Oh, I'm only able to train six hours this week around my work or lifestyle then I just adjust your training around that really. yeah. and then keep that open line of communication to yeah but you just talk to me yeah, yeah, yeah but I'm yeah. always quite detailed in the training I provide you know it's going to be a hard session well, I always believe people always feel what cracks me a bit with coaching people is people they don't like resting but rest is so important around your training if you don't rest properly the training you do is not going to be beneficial in any way I used to enjoy my rest days when I was a pro. I couldn't wait. Yeah. When I had a rest day, I'd sleep till like 11 o'clock. Now I'd just literally do nothing for the whole day. Okay, yeah. I'd feel lethargic for the first time I'd go back out on the bike, but like a day later, I'd feel great. So it is, rest is so important and communication. You see it, at, I mean, you see it at club level where, you know, you go out and you get a bit of a kick in off someone. And maybe I'm sure it's different, the same in other sports and your instinct is, I'm not going well enough. I need to, you know, your default is I need to train more yeah. to get better and you probably doing the opposite you're getting yourself more tired so next time you go out yeah, the, the, the training isn't beneficial and therefore you just you, your form's going the wrong way you know down the incline rather than up it yeah exactly yeah and what people a lot of people tend to do whether it be cycling or know any sport if they don't perform at the level they expect to not being un, not being delusional or unrealistic it's always the coach that gets the blame. And then they go jump from coach to coach saying, oh, I'm going to get a new coach because it'll be different. No, what needs to change is you as a rider. And if you listen to what the coach is telling you, then you will see the imp- improvements. And mm. it, it's not just going to happen overnight. It takes time. So mm. just have that patience and just listen and take on board what they're telling you. Because at the end of the day, you're paying me because one, I'm more experienced than you. Two, I know what I'm talking about. And three them two things are going to make you a better rider so it's about listening to what the coach is saying and if you're not you're not going to see any improvements and 
jumping from coach to coach is not going to make any difference at all. The outcome will be exactly the same. Yeah. Well, I'd be signing up for a training coach for my firm. <laughs> rubbish for about 10 years. Uh, so thank you for that, Johnny. Thanks no, for coming in. Very much appreciated. Thanks uh, for Very me. interesting chat. Very interesting chat. Mm. Uh, so Matt, do you want to just remind our listeners where to find ourselves? Yeah, I'll do the usual housekeeping. Um, so you can find us on our all the outlets, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Um, please like, subscribe and share. And if you'd be very kind enough, give us that five-star review to help boost on, our audience. Sense. You know what makes sense. Um, Facebook, we're under the M-Word podcast. Twitter, our handle is Manx Sports Pod. And on Insta, we are the M-Word I-O-M. Yeah. Great. Okay, thanks everyone. Thanks for letting us poke into your ears first for a, well, a fair amount of time. Just word out from Martin. And word out from Matt. <laughs>